And now, The Moment with Brian Koppelman. Hey, this is The Moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. And hey, thank you so much for the comments on iTunes uh, that you're digging the show. I really appreciate it, and uh, I think it really helps uh, at iTunes to keep um, increasing uh, awareness for the show. So if you do dig it, please continue to rate it and review it on iTunes. I am thrilled that Alan Havey is going to be here today. You may know the Have from his turn as Lou Avery on this season's Mad Men, where he came in uh, and just basically took over Sterling Cooper uh, and knocked it out of the park. But the Have has been one of the most important and best stand-up comedians in New York since the mid-'80s. His accomplishments... Uh, our Legion, who's been on Letterman a million times, uh, done every show you can think of. I think he's the only guy who was in Seinfeld's documentary Comedian and also on Curb Your Enthusiasm and Seinfeld. Uh, he's had an incredible career and now, at 59 years old, finds himself uh, at the center of, you know, maybe the most culturally important television show currently on the air, certainly one of them. And uh, I want to talk about what that ride has been like. Uh, on a personal note, and we'll, we'll talk about this, uh, I've been friends with The Have since 1989, um, and uh, maybe even since 19, I think we met in 1986, when I was 19 years old, and uh, he was sort of like an older brother to me, and took care of me when I first moved to New York. So we're going to talk about all that. I'm really excited you're here. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with Havey soon. All right, Alan Havey is here. Hey, I've done a little introduction for you. Thank you. Hi. I'm glad I didn't have to listen to that. Well, well, are you gonna? Li- you'll probably listen back. Oh yeah, yeah, I will. You'll hear it then. It's not. It's not as over the top as it could have been. This is the best part of my day, right now, because I feel very safe, very secure, very happy to be here on your podcast. Yeah. What could be better than this? Uh, the only thing is, I might call. I could. I, I didn't say that. I, I call you Unk. Uncle Alan all the time, which that's, that's okay. I could call you Unc during the during the course of this, which might sound strange because you're not you're not my uncle. No, but you know, I guess you want to tell people why you call me Uncle Al. Well, you used to have a I mean, you had a, a very um, effective comedy routine, wherein <laughs> wherein you called yourself Uncle Al. I did a bit about my nephews, Der Stuka, and I'm, Uncle Alan. Uncle Alan is one of those bits that people just remember. And they do. You did it on television and live in the clubs. And uh, somewhere in there, almost as a joke, I started calling you that. And then when I had kids, they started calling you that. And then that just kind of became your name around my, my house. And your sister, Jennifer and Stacy, would call me Uncle Al. Right. So it's you know? possible, even though you're only 11 years older than I am, uh, I guess that's almost Uncle. Like, you could have an 11-year-old, an uncle 11 years older. Yeah, you. but I don't think you call me Uncle because you think of me as an uncle. It's just a, it's a term of endearment. I think. Uh, all right. Well, Uncle Al. Good to see you, buddy. Anything but heavy. You don't like when people just call you by your last name? No, I don't. Why? It, it comes from Salinger. It comes from Catcher in the Rye, Ack. Ackley, yeah. Yeah, Ackley. I, I, when I was a kid and I read that, oh, that's, a, that's the most disrespectful you can be, just to call someone by their last name. Hey, Havy. Your, your son, Sammy. Yeah. I, I sent uh, congrats on Facebook. He goes, thanks, Havy. 
And then I wrote back, uh, Sammy, you can call me Alan, Mr. Havy, or Uncle Alan, but not just Havy. And he wrote back, hey, sorry. So that's okay. That's from your dad. See, you were you were acting as an uncle. Yeah. You were, you were giving a, a cross-generational correction. Exactly. Because I know Sammy loves me. Of course he does. Yeah, and he wouldn't want to hurt me. He loves Havy. He loves Havy. Who doesn't love Havy? What's what's more? But the Have is great. You don't have a problem with the Have. Or Have or the Have. No problem with that. But that's from high school. Have. The Have or Have. Have, and then I do something. Yeah, I've seen you get annoyed at people for doing the last name thing. I've seen you actually go like, come on. Yeah. Hey, it's either Call me Alan. You know, but there is a waitress at the cellar who always refers to me as Mr. Havy, and I really like it. Oh, you love it? Yeah. You don't just like it. No. It's like, <laughs> Mr. Havy? She goes, Mr. Havy. I love that. All right, little. So now, if you're listening and you see uh, the Have out there, give him a Mr. Havy, make him smile. <laughs> or, hey, uh, say, hi, Alan. I respond to that, too. I mean, it's very Lou Avery, actually, in a way, to want the proper, to be referred to in the proper way. I think so. Sure. I mean, I think Lou Avery you probably doesn't want people to just say, hey, Avery. No, certainly not at Sterling Cooper. All right, let's start the podcast. Um, I'm sitting here with, with you, and uh, as I was reviewing as I was uh, coming over here today, you know, uh, I met you when I was 19, which would have put you at 30. I think we started to become friends the next year when I was 20 years old. And... Uh, and I don't think there's almost ever been a time um, over those, I'm 48 now, so over those 28 years, where if someone said to me, hey, get your four or five closest friends together for dinner, where you wouldn't have been in that group. And vice versa, and thanks. And it was, it was interesting, too. You just didn't see me at a club. We ran into each other on the street at Shea Stadium. There were certain things in the air that brought us together. Well, it's true. We met, um, we met, at the, uh, we met when you were opening for Richard Lewis. Uh, I was on a date. And you opened for this famous comedian, and I, I thought you blew him off the stage. And I, uh, I, I told you that the next time I came to see you, I guess they introduced you, and they said, uh, "You told everybody. You yelled out to the comedy cellar. This guy opened for Richard Lewis, and then the voice, and he blew him off the stage. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. They said he opened for Richard Lewis. Yeah, you might have seen him opening for Richard Lewis, and I said and he blew him off the stage. Well, I had a lot of vim and vigor as a 19-year-old. Right, and I didn't blow him off the stage. I had a good set that night, but Richard Lewis is a solid comedian. I don't think anyone's ever blown them off the stage. Hey, if we deal in honesty here on the moment, <laughs> we we dive, we we get down into the into the kitchen. Goldman told me about this. I saw Gary Goldman last night, and I said, "How did your podcast with Brian go?" He goes, "He really digs down. He digs deep." So I, I'm open for it. I didn't feel I blew him off the stage, right? And, and and that's fine. Um, but from the audience, what, what you did at that time, I mean, I caught you right as you were becoming, um, and it was pre-internet, and I think in a way, you're, not that you got hurt because you were pre-internet, but I think if you were doing what you, what you did every night in the clubs in the internet era, I think that um, a lot of those clips would have gone viral really quickly, a lot of your crowd work, because at that time, you were becoming the top stand-up comic in New York in the clubs. Those were good years for me, good creative years. I mean, I was effective on stage, um, and I just felt raw. And it, when I was writing back then or coming up with uh, stuff on stage, riffing, it was like the soil was rich. 
and it was fertile and i you know and i had confidence and it was just a joyous time for me well yeah i was gonna um ask you about this i i you know as you know the show's called the moment and so we're gonna go back and we'll we'll talk about that part of your career but i think i want to start and I, I i thought of two moments you know, it's hard when you know somebody for as long and as well as I know you to actually step back. It's kind of easier with people I know less well. Oh, absolutely. Right, because I'm watching from a distance and it can be kind of dispassionate. But because I've lived through a lot of this with you, and I, and I want to say up front to people listening, you know, there will probably be a little more of me in this podcast than I, I try to have because I've been so intertwined in your journey. That's what I was looking forward to. You were. You, you carry the me? burden. Yes. More of me. Uh, but... Uh, there were two moments, and one is that 15 years ago you made the decision to move to Los Angeles from New York to focus on acting, and that's really paid off. But I want to talk about a um, – get a little more granular and talk about a micro moment that I think uh, is really illustrative of the way you think things through. Because you're somebody who I believe lives by a very strong code uh, of, of how a person is supposed to live and sort of prosecute this life as a, a man and as an artist. Do you agree? I, you know, I don't see it. I don't, I don't wake up every day. Okay, I've got the coat. I wear a badge, but I guess I do. But it, that comes from other observations. But I'm. Well, I think you have a strong sense of a right and wrong and how something's supposed to be done. Yeah, absolutely. How, Especially in this business. Right. How you're supposed to go through the the, the proper and appropriate way to conduct yourself. Yes, absolutely. But I learned that young. You know, I heard all the showbiz stories on Johnny Carson when I was a kid. I knew the rules before I got into the game over and over again. So by the time I got into the game, I, it was set in my mind what show business is, what you do, what you don't do. Right. That's how ingrained it is for yes, you. Absolutely. It's not even something you think to yourself, oh, I made up a code. It's like you just understand the rules. Like a guy who grew up in a mob family would just understand. Yeah, it. yeah. I mean... Uh, I mean, there are certain things I adjusted along the way or, or certain things I've done for myself that I keep to myself. that are my little secrets like in auditions or meetings uh, that I kind of have come up with that helped me. But before I – years before I ever got into show business, I knew the rules. Yeah. And I, and I knew I, the ups and downs. I believe that's true. And then, and then there's a difference between people who can um, – who kind of have an understanding of it. And people who work to enact it and live by it, you, you live. I see. What I see is that you live by it. From whether it means knowing how to look somebody in the eye and shake their hand, right? Arrive early and prepared for a day at work. Like you have a very sort of a, you have an evolved spiritual understanding because you do a lot of work in that area. But you also have a very like lunch pail kind of I'm going to work mentality. Right. Yeah, and and that comes from uh, also. Uh... The studio system in movies. I'm into classic films, and so I I uh, listen to actors being interviewed by Johnny Carson and other people. My dad would tell me stories about how people, you know, get there early, stay late, uh, get your lines down, know everybody's lines, including yours. You know that that kind of thing. When you're in a comedy set, if they tell you you have seven minutes, how many minutes do you do? I do seven or six fifty-eight. Right. And when I was on the road, when I featured for uh, Pat Paulson and a couple other people, and we did it for a little while on the road, they said, we need 25 minutes from you. I did 23 to 24. And the other night, working at the cellar, I got a big laugh. The guy gave me the light. I said, good night. You know, I didn't take that extra two minutes to try to set something up to get an even bigger laugh. I had done my job. 
and I got off. Right, and people who don't follow those rules or who are precious or treat themselves like, hey, we're artistes, you don't have a lot of patience for that. No, I, I don't, but I, I don't call them on it anymore because it's just not worth it anymore because they look at you. Because I got a, a, a reputation as being kind of a prick in the early days when someone would go over and I'd say, hey, what? And it wasn't the first time. It was like the fourth or fifth time. Like a comedian would be on stage. He got the light, go two, three, four minutes over, get a huge laugh, and go, so what else is going on? And, <laughs> and, that, and that is the kind of thing that just kills me. You've had your time. There are other people. There's another show on after you. You know, it's about rhythm. Life is about rhythm. Your set is about rhythm. Your jokes are about rhythm. It's all rhythm and playing in that rhythm. So when you go offbeat, you indulge yourself or you come in and do a guest spot and do 35, 40 minutes like some of these pricks do, it screws it up. Yes, it's that thing of um, refusing to be indulgent. You're not, you won't be self-indulgent, so you have no patience for someone else to be self-indulgent. That's right. part of the code that I see. Yes, and, and there are times when I have, the few times I have been a little indulgent, I haven't liked it in myself. You know, right. But it's it, it's rare that I will go over. Well, it's very it, rare. I mean, it's why the Mad Men era works so well for you, I think. Because in a lot of ways, there's a there are a lot of parts of sort of your personality that harken back to that time. Well, I was a kid. I, I, I'm Sally Draper's age. I was born in 54. So I'm maybe a year older than Sally Draper in that time. And there was a period when I grew up that I wanted to be in the adult world. When I was a kid, I, you know, I liked being a kid and stuff, but I really wanted to be in the adult world. And nowadays, uh, you know, if you're 17, 18, you are the adults. You, you are the people everyone focuses on, their time, their attention, their marketing plans. But I really enjoyed looking at the adult world and couldn't wait to get into it. And so when you had the opportunity, you already knew and wanted to comport yourself as an adult. Oh, when I went to the clubs... I had a briefcase, right? You know, with all my jokes and stuff in at there. At twenty-five, at Mint, yeah, uh, no, they're twenty-six. Okay, my soap and a rope, my props. I carried. You know, I used to work with props at the very beginning. Like I'd uh, put a piece of soap or rope around my neck. My mom gave it to me for Christmas, and I said I could use this. Carrot Top stole it from you. Uh, if, if he did, he may have it. God bless him. Scott's <laughs> a great guy. Good. Have it with my blessings. Somebody tried to buy it off me. They tried to buy the soap and a rope And bag? the flash, when I stopped using the flashlight bit in the early yeah. days. And I said, no. Uh, hey, have you had one of the classic? I mean, that was, the flashlight bit is one of the best, still one of the best things I've ever seen in a, in a, a comedy club. Sandra Bernhardt uh, ripped it off for one of her specials. And did she acknowledge you? Did no, she give you a, a little no, Did no, she throw a little credit to Dave's no, way? No, no. She was, a, she's a sponge. She didn't mean to steal it. Oh, of course not. She, she did my exact opening that I did. What's your name? Who's your daddy? Who's he rich like me? That she stole it. It was exactly your thing. Exactly my thing. People come. Oh, you should do something. What am I going to do? Confront her? You ever say anything to her? No. I walked by one time in traffic, and she was stopped in a cab, and she looked up and saw me and looked down. Good. That was the acknowledgement. Yeah, and I, I felt like going over. Good. You feel shame. Good for you. Is that why you retired the bit? Because she did it on a special? No, she did it after I retired it. Like like maybe or right around the same time. The bit was you would come out on stage and you would bust on the people in the front row, do no, crowd no. work first, wouldn't you? And this no. you people feel smart. You did say you people feel smart. I'll tell you what I did. <laughs> What'd you do? Come out and go, hey, it's good to be here. I know you people up front are nervous. Relax. I don't do that. I don't pick on people. 
in the front row. I pick on people who feel they're safe in the back and pull out the flashlight and zuts the last guy in the last row. And it was a great opening. It just connected you with the audience. Oh, it worked like gangbusters. Yeah, and it was fun. I did some visuals with the flashlight and whatever. But, you know, after a while, it was it was tough to put on the soap and a rope and make sure you had batteries in the flashlight. I did a gig up in the Catskills where I pulled out the flashlight and it didn't turn on. And, and That's got to be rough. It was horrible. I bombed. I died to death. I died in the Catskills. You don't want sawdust coming out of your six year. And, and, and the, those people up there, they've seen all the great entertainers, and they're just looking at me like... Who and what are you? That, so that was it. That's I never knew. That's what, why you decided no more props. Yeah. I, if, once you have to check the battery. I mean, think about it. Carrot Top has to wait for his act to come off a baggage claim belt. When you can see your act go around on a baggage claim belt, <laughs> that's kind of sad. Uh, yeah, I agree. So the moment. He, this year, and we're going to then go backwards, as I was going to say. But Okay. I guess, I, I don't know exactly when it was, but at a certain point... You booked the last two episodes of season six of Mad Men, which was a big deal for you, right? Because it was your favorite show. Dream come true. Ruby Keeler, out of the chorus line. You started in, in college. You were a theater major. Stand-up happened. You were always a very funny person. You became great at it. But acting was your first love. Absolutely. And the show you dreamed of being on was Mad Men. Yeah. And you did these two episodes and you had no idea if you were coming back for season seven none not a clue and then one day <coughs> i get a phone call dave and i my uh, writing and directing partner and i get a phone call from you and you don't id where you're going but you say i have an incredibly important audition right and we talked about the audition you were um you were uh, had prepared and you just wanted to, to talk it through before you went in right i and i was under extreme pressure, and I guess you guys sense that, but I needed to talk to somebody because I couldn't tell anybody. Right. And so you didn't ID that it was Mad Men. And I didn't think about Mad Men at first because you would already audition and were on the show. Right. But what I've since pieced together is you figured out that before they were really going to write you what they wrote you, which was the dominant sort of new part in season seven. They wanted you to kind of audition a second time. What did they call it? An uh, acting session. With Matt with Matt Weiner. Yeah, but they had already written it. They had extended the character. I got the script. Oh, that acting session was the first three scenes in episode one with Lou Avery and the other characters on it. It wasn't camouflage like they usually do. And I since, since no, from what you said, that at, at a certain point your manager had called you and said, hey... They're considering doing this. They want to check if you're really ready, if you can really handle it. And to me, this moment when you were driving to go audition again uh, feels like an incredibly um, powerful thing that, that you had to put yourself through. What did, it, what did that feel like? And a lot of people, I've seen a lot of actors don't want to audition. They feel you should know me already. I've worked already. Why? How did you make the decision that you were going to go in and keep yourself focused, knowing it was the biggest opportunity of your life. Well, calling you guys help because you you guys gave me some great advice. You know, I asked about what is acting about. You said relaxing, just being in the moment. So when I got to the sides, the thing that frightened me the most was I can do this. I've got this. I, I know who this character is. It's beautifully written. And I've been watching the show. But it was the... The fact that I was taking over for Don Draper, and I was the boss. 
So when Matt called my manager, he wanted to know, can Alan Avey really act? You know, because he had seen me and Louie, thought that was improvised, it wasn't. And he liked my work in season six, but he wanted to make sure I could handle the pressure of doing that. And I said, well, I've done Letterman. I've been to Afghanistan. I've been doing stand-up. I can, I, you know, I can handle the pressure. But going into the thing, I knew this was mine to lose. All I had to do was go in there and have just a great, solid session with Matt, and it was mine. And that kind of scared me a little bit. Sure, yeah, terrifying. And there is something to be said about dealing with that joy, just, you know, kind of, okay, push that down because you've got a job to do. And two, three minutes into the session, we did about 40 minutes. I just went the two of you? Was yeah. there a casting person in the room? Cast, two casting people were in the room. Camera? Uh, uh, yeah, they had a camera. Tom Smuts and Squirt, uh, Scott Hornbacker were there. Uh, and Scott directed the first episode. And I went with Matt, and we ran it through. Three, he had. I did it three. I did the three scenes on my own, my choices. He watched. They liked it. Great. Now do it this way. Now do it this way. Do it that way. Sit down. Talk. Tell me about yourself. Let's get up. Let's try it again. Do it this way and that way. It was just fun. And Matt said a few times, I hope you don't mind this. I go, no, this is great. I love to play. It reminded me of theater school. And he finally said, you know, you're the boss. You're the boss. I go, great. Fantastic. I accepted everything because I've been meditating too. And there's a thing in meditation where I've accepted the tragedy of the world or the BS we get every day. I had to accept this totally, this great opportunity because it was a golden opportunity. Yeah, because it's rare that you get a life-changing valedictory put in, in front of you. And it's like my first letterman, you know. Your first letterman, but only, I would suggest, and only different because, man, you were on an upswing when you got that first letterman. Everything was first happening to you. Yeah, and that, that was a logical next step. This was a validation of every choice you ever made. Yeah, okay. <laughs> All right, I'll accept that. I mean, right? So yeah. the choice of lo of it potentially not happening at your, you holding it in your hands, uh, you know, because by the end of the phone call we had, because of, I figured out it was probably Mad Men. Right? I didn't say it because right. I didn't want to freak you out, but I figured out, oh, it's probably Mad Men. I remember saying to you something like, play, go have fun. I kept trying to say yeah. it, like, make it fun. In, as one of the things. Um... The thing that really helped me when you, what you said, look at everyone in that room like they're a heckler. And, and you know in your act when you say, hey, I got this, when you get a heckle in the crowd and say, hey, I got this, that really helped me. Oh, that's great. Because you can see the character, Lou Avery's like that. Yeah. He's got this. Yeah. No problem. And you got it. But, but, but emotionally, a lot of actors, I think, would have, uh, ad would have used forced bravado in a way to say, I'm not going in again. They know who I am. I, uh, you know, really? Uh, I think so. You didn't yeah. even, it didn't even occur to you to say no. No. No, I wanted to go in. When she said, well, Matt's you know, concerned that you can act and handle the pressure, I go, well, I'd love to go in. Have me in again. Let's let's play. That was Those were my exact words. Let's go in and play. I don't have a, I don't have a problem with anything uh, as far as acting is concerned, getting in the door. You know, I'll audition several times. I'll do it any way you want. I don't... You know, I don't own this character. I never once uh, got something. Well, Lou Avery wouldn't say this. You know, right. this is not. You know, when I hear actors talk about my character, well, it's not your character unless you wrote it. It's not your character. Yeah, that's not the because that preciousness is exactly the kind of thing you can't stand. Yeah, I, I just I, I it never occurred to me. It's also because you're a writer. 
So you would never, as a writer, you understand, hey, this guy's been thinking about this for a long time. Yeah. And I watch television. I always watch the credits. When I was uh, going to movies in the 70s, went to movies, I'd stay and see who wrote it and who did the lighting, who did the camera. I knew there were other people involved besides the people on the screen. And I have great respect for writers because I've been writing comedy for myself. And it's really hard. It's really hard to do. So when an actor says, well, do I have to say this word? Yeah, you have to say that word. When I was in college doing plays, and I'm doing Tennessee Williams or uh, William Saroyan, I would, it was a point of pride for me to get every word exactly as it appeared in the play. And when other actors would paraphrase in college now, I said, what are you doing? Well, I'm just, no, this is Shakespeare. This is Saroyan. This is Tennessee Williams. Even if it was a student playwright, this is what the writer, the challenge to me was to make that work, no matter what you had to do. So I, I really was prepared to do a show like Mad Men the way they work, because you don't ad-lib anything. You don't change a syllable. You put, it's not Peggy's, it's Peggy is. Do you know what I mean? And and I love that kind of uh, specificity. Speci specificity. Thank you. That's a, a word I have a problem with. Thanks for well, helping me. I'm here for you in any way, whether it's <laughs> audition coaching or linguistic pronunciation. I, honestly, I came by to improve my vocabulary. That's no problem. But when when this was happening, did you allow yourself to consider the uh, what would happen if you blew it? No. That's great. How? No. How did you... How? Because, because I think a useful thing is, how, how did you... You know, you were... You had taken a huge risk, I think, leaving New York and moving to L.A. all those years ago. And... We can talk about what life in New York was like for you then, but this was clearly the biggest opportunity you'd ever had. You'd had a movie, you know, you were cast in a big movie once years before, and that, through no fault of your own, the movie didn't quite, you know, maybe work as well as everybody had hoped. Right. Since then, this was the biggest shot. Yeah, I would say that. And uh, what did you do to sort of keep yourself only positive about the whole thing? Well, I had been meditating for the last couple of years. That really helped me. It's helped me in my life uh, deal with anger management and stress uh, to accept acceptance. You know, when there's something that comes along I, I can't control, I deal with it much better than I used to do. Right, because your instinct is to fix things. Absolutely. I mean, uh, you're not even somebody. You came over to my house the other day and didn't like how we were preparing a steak, and you were like, I'll make the steak. Yeah. You and just you ended up, you're like, oh, I'm going to make the steak. Yeah, don't because worry. Your instinct is like, well, let me go get in there. Yeah. I'm going to fix that. No, you made a great steak, by the way. Thank better you. than we were doing, for sure. <laughs> but that instinct can get you into trouble sometimes. It can, uh, but yeah, I, listen, I know what I'm going in. I'm going in as an actor only. And I, so in, it's weird, and I told Matt this and mentioned to a few people once I got the part, the great thing about this, or what I had to change, because as a stand-up, I don't trust anybody. It, I only trust myself when I'm on stage. And when I went in there, I had to trust them all. You know, just just let your guard down, trust them, accept whatever comes your way. Don't argue. And I let go a lot of that, and it was so freeing, and it worked. You know, they put, they do your hair, they put your clothes in the trailer, they tell you where to stand, they tell you how you, they'd like you to play the scene. Great, I loved it, and all I had to do was play the scene. And that's fascinating to me that you've gotten yourself to that place, and it's so rewarding to see. I feel so uh, pleased for you that you've been able to get yourself there, because. I view the early part of our 
you know, the first 10 years or 15 years I would watch you work your way through the world of comedy, it seemed fueled by a lot of uh, rage. Yeah. Like that was the driving force. Well, it kind of happened after my father passed away. And my father was a very angry man, but a very loving man, very affectionate. My dad and I always hugged. He was a, he loved people. My father never met a stranger. So he could be, he could talk to anybody. Right. He, he, he was just that kind of guy. And I have part of that, but there was also a lot of anger with my dad. And I was raised by an anger specialist for years. And it was normal for me, if things didn't go right, to get angry and yell. I thought that was completely normal. No matter who, who you were yelling at? No, it didn't matter. A comedian, a club owner. In line at Starbucks. You know, oh, really? We're going to have a conversation about a latte? Could you get more employees over there? Come on, guys. Let's get it together. Right. You know. And then you don't understand why everybody's staring at you. Yeah. Well, right. You're like, oh, now I'm the asshole. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. And like I said, you know, I have met no jerks on Mad Men. Nobody. So I go, maybe I'm the you right. know, because I haven't met one. That's why, yeah, right, if you don't know. So, but it's you, like the poker. But you changed, I mean, you made a conscious effort to go in there in a different mindset. Yeah, and it was really effortless because I knew what the situation was. I'd been watching the show for years. And I'd, you know, and I've heard lots of interviews with directors over the years saying, you know, I hate it when an actor says, well, my character wouldn't say that or my character wouldn't do that. But that doesn't exist on that set. But I want to revisit this thing about the anger and you saying it came after your, your dad died and that you would... Um, you basically thought there was nothing wrong with, in fact, almost like it was your, your right, if someone screwed up, to act to act out. And did you ever, like, w notice the cost of doing that as you were progressing up through the beginning ladders of, of showbiz? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, or, or I'd think back and go, oh, geez, that was wrong. Or someone would tell me, you know, you hurt her feelings. There's a, there's a better way to deal with that. Yeah, you're right. But I also, too, when I was, like, doing my talk show... I didn't have someone buffering me. I had a couple of producers, and they were, they, you know, they did a good job. But I felt there was nobody protecting me. So when things weren't done, it would build up, and then I'd say, "Okay, let's get this done," and it works. Yelling at people does work sometimes. There were these guys moving furniture on a Sunday outside my apartment yeah. building. My wife went down and talked to them. You know, I went down and talked to them. Didn't work because they kept moving. And I went down and I go, all right, right now, it's either the hospital or the police. You, I mean, I really got in their face. And they stopped. So it, it does work. Well, crazy works. Yes. Crazy absolutely yeah. works until you get shot, you know, until you get shot or tased. I'm but so, keep it I'm right so glad I'm line. sitting here today. There's so many times I've walked out in the streets of New York with a chip on my shoulder and someone looked at me the wrong way. I, I, it's a miracle I'm, I'm alive. Yeah, it's great that you're alive, and I, I think you might be. I mean, yeah, there, you definitely had these um, moments of of anger. I'm thinking about the, the the talk show, and you had this great show, Night After Night. And as you look back on that stuff, I, I was looking at, um, I was thinking about how New York looked from my perspective. You know, I moved here after college, and you were you were the headliner at the Comedy Cellar. You were the top guy in that pecking order, and the other comedians there were Ray Romano and John Stewart. And Paul Provenza very often, and who are some? Of, oh, who are some of the other big names who were there? Oh, well, there are a lot of guys, big names or not. But, but I mean, were, Ron Darian and yeah. Rick Crum and Grunfest. There was this a huge, um, heavy hitter thing. But when you would go on stage, all those guys would come and watch. I mean, there were many nights. See, I don't remember that. But right, there were I, many nights when I was standing in the little um, vestibule, and I would and John Stewart would come down, and we'd both be standing there. 
watching you do your thing. And you saw the way the other comedians looked at you and talked to you back then. You Not, can't say you didn't. Well, I, you know, I mean, you've I, heard them interviewed. You've heard, you've heard them all, you know, for various ones interviewed over the time and say, oh, Havey was the best guy. Uh, I didn't know that then. And I would say there were other comedians there. Dom Herrera. Sure. I, 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 I would never say I'm a better comedian than Dom. And I, I never thought of being the best comedian. I just was worried about doing the best job I could. But did you think that certain of those people had, um, it's funny, you have, you have, um, amazingly good people skills. Uh, it's very, you're not somebody who, um, down on people. You're no. very no, no, I'm saying you're not. You're yeah. very nice to people. But do you think there were there were other people in that world who somehow were able to temper certain parts of their personalities that enabled them to to sort of keep going where you maybe got stopped up at various points along the no, way? No, I, I, I you didn't. You don't trade in that. No. You think you think you got a fair shake? Oh yeah, the whole time. Oh yeah, because. Uh, I never. Uh, here's here's been the buzz of me, and I know you feel this way that I never got my credit where credit was due. I never got that. As long as I got the laughs, as long as I did my job, as long as the other comedians paid me respect, the, the best compliments come from your peers. Like I went the other night uh, at the cellar, and a couple of comedians said how much they love my work, not only at the club but on Mad Men. That makes me happy. You know, because those were those are the people I respect the most. Other well, yeah, actors. I've been comedians. at the cellar when you've walked in, and I've seen Chris Rock. Well, I don't know, but I've seen Chris Rock say to other comedians, "This guy pointing at you, that's a stand-up comedian." Yeah, and I know that means something. To oh, me. it means a lot to me, and it's not because of Chris's uh, celebrity or his, his ranking. It's just because I think Chris is a great comedian, and I've gotten that kind of compliment from Jerry Seinfeld, Larry David. Oh, for years. sure. I've, I've, gotten, I've seen them say it. I've had that respect for years, so that has meant the most to me. No, my son ran into John Stewart somewhere and said that he he, he didn't ID himself as no as my son, <laughs> but he ran into uh, John Stewart. He probably called you Havy. He probably yeah. said to John Stewart, "You know, Havy." And John Stewart said the best. There was nobody better than than oh, Havy. That's beautiful. Uh, best stand up I saw in my. You know, he's like that was the best stand up. Uh, no, and I, I remember Mark Maron asked you this question when you did the live Mark Maron about. Um, he he kind of casually said something about, well, you know, we didn't make it. And you were like, hey, hold on a second. Don't pay me with that brush. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If, you, if you want to feel that way about yourself, that's fine and that's your problem. And But you have a live podcast and look at all these people that came up. If you're in your mind, you don't think you've made it, God bless you. Right. Good luck. Right. No, because you could make a movie and it's not number one, you didn't make it. I got a sitcom, but it's number three. It's not making it. We didn't get nominated for Emmy. Look at our time slot. We lost... Two percent of our audience in Denver last week. <laughs> I mean, that's where you're going with that kind of mindset. Do you know? Do you understand what I mean? Oh, I totally understand. I'm just fascinated by how you, because yes, the people who would watch you then, and then you were with these other comedians, and some of them went on to greater commercial success. God bless them. Yes, and you mean that. Yes, I'm happy for any comedian doing anything, even if it's a comedian I don't like. And they're a comedian. There's a there's maybe three or four comedians. I just genuinely don't like them, but if they have success, I'm happy for them. Something I learned from my dad. Ironically, got the anger from my dad, but my father instilled in me like when someone does something, be happy for them. It's good for them. It, if someone succeeds, it, it's not taken away from you. Even if they beat you out for the job, be a gentleman. Right. The opposite of the Gore Vidal thing. Where he's like, uh, a part of me, you know, whenever anybody succeeds, a part of me dies. When one of my friends succeeds, a part of me dies. Better than that is Oscar Wilde. It is not enough for me to succeed. 
others must fail. Yeah. Yeah. Right. You don't have any of that. No, I don't. And I'm really, I think that's really kept me going in the game. That's what I wanted to understand is a lot of people, I think, who had your incredible gifts, which is that, because the thing, it's hard on a podcast because someone's not sitting here seeing you, but I mean, it's still the case. You kill Every single night you get up on stage. Uh, uh, oh, yes, I don't want to jinx you. Yeah, no, sure. I'm not going to. Uh, maybe you want, you know, once. No, I've had a couple of tough sets recently, and, you know, no, it, I don't kill, but I, I I, do connect and I do do well. But I can't. That's for you to say. You can say that. I don't say that. Yes, but watching it and watching you kill for all those years and then trying to say for, for me and for the other people, that's why Mad Men made me so happy for you right because oh, it's made so many people happy. i get i get emails from people i've been watching your career for years i've seen you in vegas we're so happy that you're finally getting out there and people know who you are even though you're not a stand-up people are really happy about that well i was going to ask you so how did that make you feel when you saw that did you have this sense that there were so many people rooting for you did you know it oh yeah you did yeah that's great i, I just as long as people didn't feel sorry for me you know well, no, you've, you've done Letterman how many times? Ten times. So. Yeah, Letterman ten times. You, like I said, you know, you were on Seinfeld and Curb. You've done it. Of course, you were on Louis last year. You've had two of your own TV shows. You've you've done, uh, in my mind, of course, you've made it, whatever that means. But I, here, here's when I made it, uh, when I moved to New York. When I moved to New York and was able to function, get a job tending bar, had my own apartment, and I was moving around, I go, I've made it. I've made it here. And then in this building, the Brill Building, when Lauren Michaels hired me for the new show, 1984, great. They get me. Somebody, some, and he was a top guy in comedy at the time. Once I was cast by Lauren Michaels, and, it, you know, the show ran 12 weeks and out. But I realized, okay, people see it. So I, I feel great about this. Now I can continue on. What age were you when you moved here? I was 24, 23, 24. And when you first came, it was to be an actor. Yeah. Well, I had a comedy partner, and we did stuff, but I was auditioning for plays or trying to audition for plays. Or Talk about, because um, you mentioned your dad a couple of times, and you grew up mostly in Florida, yeah. right? Born in St. Louis, but... Raised in Miami. And is it true that your dad would wake you up to watch Carson after your mom went to sleep? Yeah. How, was, how would that happen? Talk about that. I, I wasn't asleep. I would just kind of like be in bed, kind of, you know, and, and my dad would go, oh, he goes, I'm going to take a nap with your mom. I'll be out later. So I guess he'd go in with my mom and, you know, do mom and dad things. And kind of, he'd go, ah, wake up. Let's go. Carson's on, you know. Or Jack Parr. Jonathan Winters on tonight. Oh, God, Jonathan Winters. And so we'd go out there, and he'd let me watch about, he'd let me watch Carson's monologue and then the first guest, and then I had to go to bed. And did your mom know this was going on? No. So my, it was a special thing the two of you had. Absolutely. And, of course, my dad's like, make me a peanut butter sandwich. You know, go grab me a beer. So he had someone to go get his stuff, you know, <laughs> which was fine. It was like, uh, this is great. Those must have been really magical times for you. Greg, and it was a night owl anyway. I, my brother always fell asleep two minutes after his head hit the pillow. The nighttime was my time. I felt since I was a kid, I was born at two in the morning. And, you know. And how old were you when your dad was waking you and only you to watch Carson with him? Eight, nine, ten. And did it go on then through junior it, it, high? During, no, during the summer, and then I'd go out on my own. 
you know, I'd just stay up late. My parents would go to sleep. I, I'd just sneak out and watch it on my own. And those people became super important to you. Yeah. It, it was, here's the thing. It was a world that was done in New York then. And I knew they were in New York. And I think it was live or I, I just felt it was part of it. And people come on, hey, I saw you at the, the opening the other night. I went to this Broadway show. I was at this deli. It just painted the picture of New York, you know, beyond that curtain, behind Johnny's curtain and beyond the camera. That, that was New York out there. And one time, the camera pulled back and there was this big cable in the middle of the floor. And I just got excited. Oh, that's a cable. That's connecting me to it, – it's connected to the television. You know, oh, my God, that's that's how they can, you know, get the picture down here. I just love New York. The news came from New York. Everything came from New York. So from an early time, you knew I'm figuring out how to get there, and I'm going to be on the other side of that thing. I'm going to be on the other side of that cable. Oh, and that's yeah. what you want. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm going to be in show business. And then as I got older, stand-up seemed a little hard, even though I was a you know, funny kid, because I, early I realized the value of laughter very early in life when I was in kindergarten. And I've told this story before. Right. That was the first time you were funny was in kindergarten. And then the first joke at the family table that killed. And then learning the rule of not to repeat the joke. Yes. All those things you learned very young. And then you watched you watched Carson, which was some kind of incantation to you, I think. Some kind of uh, spell being cast. Oh, it was. Yeah, absolutely. That brought you to New York. Well, and then but then after that, it was films. And even at that time, I watched old movies. And my dad was really into films. And during the 70s, when I was old enough to get on a bus and go to theaters, I saw the great films of the 70s, like late 60s, early 70s. And that really got me. I thought, I wouldn't be surprised if I became a filmmaker, because I wanted to do that, but I was more of a, a performer. You know, but I really, I mean, I like directors, I like editing, I was understanding about this stuff. You know, watching... When you're in high school? Oh, yeah. Yeah. P- P- guys get up to go. And my friends go, no, 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 wait, wait, we got to see the credits. Awesome. And then I'd look up at the, uh, the, you know, the DP, and I go, hey, that's the same guy that did it in Catch Twenty Two, or what, you know, whatever the movie was. And my friends like, who gives a, right. who cares? I did. So, they, I, I just anything to do with film or comedy or acting. And then when I got into uh, community college, and started uh, doing plays, these are my people. All Catholic, all boys school in high school. And we put on plays and skits. And But when I got to Miami-Dade, they had a new theater and did theater. And there were black, white, Jewish, trans, gay. You know, it was it was like, these are my people. These are the people that have the same dream that I do. This is it, baby. This is show business. And so for you, just be any environment where you're with those, where you're in the circus, that's it. Yeah. You don't have to be... The one-star trapeze artist. No. You want to be in the circus. I love doing backstage work. I, I loved running lights. I liked being a stage manager, uh, an usher. Right. Well, that's, you know, my favorite Mamet quote, which I think I've said before, you know, uh, is um, you, the people who, who make it in the show business uh, are the people who just refuse to go home. Yeah. <laughs> that was me. I, uh, uh, I still do sometimes, you know. Yeah. Uh, you just, I, but, I, mean, I, I love the environment. Of a, a film set, television set, theater, comedy club. Yeah. Well, he even means, you know, in a metaphorical sense, like refusing to just give it up. Oh. Just hanging. Just, I'm going to do this. And I quit stand-up for like three or four months when I first started. I quit. What happened? I you just... killed your first time up. No, I did not. What happened? I did not. I, I did okay. 
And then I then I got past the improv and I started doing well. But then I went into a slump, and I couldn't handle it. And I went home and I tried to change my material and stuff like that. And I didn't go back for six seven months. I'd already passed the define club. slump. Uh, four or five bad sets in a row. Material that had worked before suddenly wasn't working. Some, but it was also not a laugh, that kind of thing, or just when you come off and people don't look at you. You know, when you when you have a good set and you walk st- off stage, people look at you. You know, the other comedians, who's, the, the waitresses who's ever working in the club, you go out to the bar, people look, hey, you know. When you bomb, nobody wants to look at you. And I could sense that, and I hated that, that humiliation of not doing your job. I mean, last night I did, did a bit that didn't get laughs, and it got laughs. Now it's not getting laughs. But that's just one bit in a 20-minute yeah, but set. still, but still, I, I can handle that. You know, I can say, you know, I you rarely hear this kind of quiet in New York. <laughs> you know, there's there's always ways. There's always was a that way. your last set last night? That was, yeah, that was my only set last night. I just did one bit. It's about the baby staring a baby down at a Starbucks, and it worked like Friday, like three or four times. Like, great, I finally got this. And then Saturday it didn't work, and last night it didn't work. So I have to go back. and. So now what do you do? Go back and rework it. There's something there. I, I'll find it. Will you do it on stage? Like, how will you rework it? On stage? Oh, there's the only way you can do right. it is on stage. So you have to go up there knowing you may have to suffer through, but then you do you put stuff around it that you know works? Yeah, yeah. I'll be fine. I'm not going to open with it. You know. Did you open with it last night? No. I would never open with that. Unless I'm feeling really cocky, but I, I didn't. But it, it's weird. I did 12 sets this weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, uh, even dozen. And probably Saturday, my second set, I felt really loose. So I riffed for 90% of it, and it all worked. Just because I was in that mood. Right. You know, and that's what I love about the seller. That's what, you know, SD puts, when I'm in town, they put me on every show. I've been there for 30 years. I do a good job. And I love doing multiple sets because you can do adjustments and fix stuff. And you get to hang out all night. And does it does it bug you that now you know in your mind last night you did this hunk it didn't work are you are you now at a point where you can just let it go or are you gonna be thinking about it until you get to go up again and, no, and have a good set I'll I'll rework it but it's not bothering me I'm not I, I didn't go home last night oh what happened you know I, I don't live and die with each joke and even if I had a tough set it would it would suck but I'd be okay but back then you said you quit over it yeah well this was when I was young and raw and I you know and it was like. It was just hard, and it was also hard hanging out at the improv. Why? Because I didn't know a lot of people, you know, and when I, there was a lot of sadness in a comedy club back then. There's a lot of desire. There's a lot of, everyone, they're trying to cut, they're going for something. No one's really happy where they are. You know, if you're not a regular working comedian, you're doing well, it's not, those aren't good people to hang out with. Do you, do you understand what I mean? Like beginning comedians or it's not working oh, or they're desperate. The, the striving and yeah. the, well, yeah, Soder and I, Dan Soder and I were talking about it because, you know, he and I met an open mic and. Yeah, the open mic sidewalks, I'd wait on on the sidewalk, catch a rising star. And it was just, it was like being in the, you know, Ben-Hur where they're rowing and stuff like that. At least they're doing something. At least they're rowing and they're getting whipped. So, <laughs> so there's motive. But you're on the sidewalk. What the hell am I doing here? I'm just taking a shot. It's uh, It's very sad. And then, yeah, it is sad because you look around and you had to know, I mean, how do you know you're not the, you're not as crazy as they are? Exactly. 
Yeah, there was a guy who would bend nails and he'd do his bit for me in line, and I would just look at him and I just wanted him to go away. <laughs> you know, but I wasn't, you know, I was trying to be nice and he was a bit. And then when his number was called, he was always gone. See, that was be gone before he got on stage? There's several comedians, we would pull numbers, and right when their number would come up, you'd look around, they were gone. They were afraid. That doesn't happen anymore. But no, that's what I was saying about uh, the Mad Men audition. Yeah. Which is, I think a lot of people would find a way to get themselves out of it. Probably. There's a lot of fear. That's what I'm saying. And, and it wasn't a fear of, oh, I'm going to blow this. The fear was, oh, I've got this. Three minutes into that room with Matt, I realized, no, this is cool, man. I, I this character's great. I I totally embodied him. He's mine. I knew I had it three minutes into the room. That was a great feeling. That must have been a great thirty seven minutes after oh, that. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I said, No, fine and then they said, Well thank Matt came out and said, Thank you and the sides were there, you know, because I had memorized them. They told me to memorize I said, You want me to grab those now? You know, like, uh, save you some time. Oh, that's <laughs> he great. goes, no, you can leave those there. Okay, thank you. And then when did they call you? I got a call. I was pulling out of the parking lot at downtown studios and getting on, the, and I got a call from my manager, and I said, hello. She goes, you did it. Oh. Yeah. That was a great feeling. And I can only tell my wife. Right. I couldn't tell you. I couldn't tell my friend Todd. I couldn't tell my family. So I lied to everybody but my wife. That, that's, that's the line. It was like, and that was hard for a little bit, but then it felt good. I think it's it's a great thing for an actor that he can't tell people. That the whole thing is hermetically sealed. Yes. So when you show up on the set, not that we talk about it, we're all a part of this kind of, not conspiracy, but this secret. No, in a good way, a conspiracy. Yeah, yeah this is... I mean, you know, that's the the Theodore Veblen quote, that every profession is a conspiracy against the laity. Yeah. And there's something about having That's a, from the Talmud? No, it's, no, it's from... Because uh, I, I, I love that quote. It's a great quote. No, it's well close to the Talmud. I get it from... Um, Mamet talking about it, but he was a, a philosopher guy, theater uh, people. He wrote that was in True stuff. and False, right? I think that's where I read it. Oh, was it in True and False? I think sure. it was. It might have been. Um, and uh, it was either in that, either in True and False uh, or one of those essay books right. uh, about Hollywood. But it's a great quote, and I think it's completely true. And there's some power in that insular world. There is, and I think it makes you a better actor. I think keeping a secret... Now that the act, there are actors on it who have to keep a secret for a year um, until the next Mad Men, you know, um, there's something powerful in a secret when you don't tell anybody. You really don't. And I think it it helps your focus. I think it gives you dignity. Well, let's say I could talk about it. Let's say that day I could have called you up, hey, I, I'm on Mad Men. And then word gets out, Mad Men, Mad, and then people are asking me about Mad Men for months. It distracts you completely. Distracts it. It depletes you. To me, talking about comedy or acting work really is like green kryptonite. It weakens, I think, actors. It weakens the process. Right. Like they used to say about boxers fooling around wood. Yeah. Bad for the legs. Yeah. <laughs> don't, don't, don't leave the fight in the gym. Bad for the legs. Take me back now. You quit. You decide, I'm quitting comedy. It's sad. Right. I'm going to walk away from well, it. Well, or I, I just felt I wasn't doing the job. I can't do this. And I just, and then I realized, what, I go, in 10 years from now, I'm going to be seeing some of these guys on TV. I'm going to be kicking myself. I put myself forward in time. I said, okay, put yourself forward in time. You're going to be looking at some of these guys. And this is 1981. And I went back. 
I said, and I literally, it's like I grabbed my legs and started to push. You go right back in there. You forced yourself. Yes, forced myself, got back in. That's super inspiring. And 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 it all came from me. There's nobody I shared it with, nobody to talk to. You didn't have a girlfriend at that time? No, were... I mean, I did, but she she became psychotic, so she was no help. Right. You know, uh, she thought it was Jesus, so she, you know, she really didn't have a grip on reality. And But I just went back. I said, no, no, you see it until they drag you off, until... It, they start throwing tomatoes at you until somebody hurts you. But, and, and that's the great thing about show business. Nobody can kick you out. You know, it's, nobody can fire you from show business. And so how long until you got funny after that? A, a, a couple months. I start, yeah, I mean, when I first got back, I worked in my act, and I started getting on my legs, and I was fine. And I had some ups and downs. And but you were already passed at the club? Already passed. So you weren't doing open mics. You were actually getting regular sets. But, what you had to do those days, you go and hang out and maybe get on. And that was killing me, too, the time just hanging out at the bar. I'm not a bar guy. I don't drink. Back uh, then, you would drink a little bit, no? Never before. Never before going on. on. So no. you're sitting there dry. Yeah. Everybody else is drinking. Not everybody else. A few guys. But it wasn't like being around drunks. But it was just, you, you like crane your neck when the manager would come out like, I'm here. What club was this? This is the improv. This is before Catch. Yeah. Because the stories I've heard, I mean, you say now not everyone's drinking because you're trying to, I think, be... But most guys then, it seems to me, were pretty much, you know, uh, getting f***ed up a lot of the time. I, you know, maybe there were few. Is the stories people tell? Do the people romanticize that time, do you think? Uh, to a certain extent. But no, there was coke around. There were there was alcohol. And later on, of course, when it became successful, I indulged myself. But never before going on stage. And the thing is, when I got off and had a good set, I didn't need to drink. Drinking would take me down. Later on, like later at the club, to keep that good feeling, then the coke would come out, and that was great. But yeah, great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was great. Yeah, because it was, uh, you know, it, and especially yeah, for someone with a predisposition to anger, it's terrific. Yeah. everybody should. That's what you want to do. <laughs> I felt good. Anger plus coke. Yeah, equals fun. Fun. Yes. Right. Uh, it's uh, needless to say you haven't done that in twenty years. Yeah, it's been a long time. Yeah. I, I, a friend of mine recently said, "I want you to tell my talk to my son about cocaine." I go, "No, you don't." I had a great time. <laughs> I had a ball. You don't want to talk to me about coke. Well, but why'd you lay it down then, buddy? Uh, you know, you get in your... <laughs> I don't want to die. Right. Fair enough. enough. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're being a little bit... Gli I think a little flip when you tell the, the kid, oh, I had fun. You had fun no, until it's not fun. I would never tell a kid that. I'm yeah. saying until it's not fun. Yeah. You know, it, the, the saying was, uh, you can have a good time with coke, and then coke starts having a good time with you. Well, that's, yeah, there yeah. you go. But, I mean, that, I, that doesn't even, I wasn't even trying to lead you down that road. Right. I was just saying that you, at that time, were sitting there long nights trying to invest in the fact that if you hang around, you'll get on stage, and you just would do it. Right. It's about times, about getting out of the house, doing the time. And here's the thing now. In comedy clubs now, open mics, whatever, I'm not talking about regular working comedians, but comedians now, or young guys now getting into comedy, oh, I belong here. I am a comedian. I have no fear. You know, there's a, it's like, remember the ad used to be, I want to be like Mike? Yeah. And then it became, I am Tiger Woods. So it, it's like when young actors go, to, they don't go there, I want to be an actor and, or I, you know, I, I am an actor, but I want to be a better. It's like, I'm great. Where's my chance? I've already got it together. This is what I, this is the attitude I get from young actors and a lot of young comedians. Like I got my together. And, you know, all I need is to get on stage. Like they, uh, like it's coming to them. Like it's their birthright. Absolutely. You see that in comedians too? Yes. In, in what way? Just in arrogance. 
And just in their attitude. I, I, I've seen comedians walk off stage, not do very well. They're not sweating. They, you know... But I guess that's okay. So, but I guess that's what I want to revisit. I was thinking you said, you know, people would get upset for you, you said, or sometimes you'll see friends not feel sorry for you, but be like, Havy's the best. Havy Havy kills it. Mr. Havy, Alan, kills it uh, and has had some shots and has had great stuff happen to him. But, you know, if you go watch, if you go watch the Young Comedian special that you were on, Mm -hmm. if you go watch um, the comic relief when you did Raining on My Furniture, and this stuff's all on YouTube, you can find this stuff. Right. You were, at a time, the shooting star of your class of comedians. Yeah, and I got, and I got the Letterman. I got my, both my specials were nominated for Cable Ace, Cable Ace Awards. Awards. So of course. I, I didn't feel like I was, wasn't appreciated. Right. But I'm saying if I were in your shoes at a certain point, you know, you got a show on Comedy Central. It's a groundbreaking show. It's a show that people, people who watched it loved it. it, ran for three years. Yeah. And at the end of it, you know, it was like the freight train. Uh, I mean, I've had screenwriters in here who talk about this, Doug Allen, or John, where the world was saying to them, uh, you know, hey, it's all going great. Uh, and then at a certain moment, the train kind of stopped. Yeah. And your mother died. Your show, which was, you know, you were getting paid a lot of money. You were living in New York. You were on TV every night. And, and then the train stopped. And you didn't have great manage- You didn't have great people around you. To help you make decisions. that transition, that's you know my managers. I had good managers all through those, like from '85 to '94, and from '85 to '92 they were good. And then the transition didn't work. I went on meetings, sitcoms. I didn't get the show after Letterman that I was up for, and that's understandable. It just it happened. So I changed management, got some new management that worked for a little bit. Then I go that well and then i realized it's over right how did you it's over i thought it's over it's over that's it i'm not the young guy anymore i'm not the new kid on the block i'm not it's over i didn't get the sitcom that would that was the next logical step the sitcom or the talk show the the bigger profile talk show it was like 1998 i go it's over what did that feel like it it i i felt I felt, well, I, at least I had my shots and I, I made my mark, but, you know, I guess it's over in 98. Well, I was, what, 44? And I just, I got really depressed. And I thought, it, shortly after that, not even a year, I said, no. No, it's not. It's not over. You just keep going out there, doing the best you can. You're in L.A. You're going to audition for anything. You know, you, you're going to find good management. I had a couple, you know ineffective managers and uh what do you think it is inside you that allowed you to turn it this is what i'm fascinated by the decision you made to move to la at a certain point where you were in new york city you were still king of a small world i slayed all my dragons here right but you were king of a small world here you and it's a big world because new york city yeah you could work in any comedy club you would headline at those clubs you were important in this world everybody would treated you very specially and you made a decision that you wanted to go act, like you made a decision. What happened that made you go, I'm going to try this? Because New York became my small pond. New York wasn't overwhelming like it was when I moved here. Everyone knew me. I could have access to clubs. You know, I I guess I could have stayed and worked on acting here, maybe tried theater. But I thought, no, L.A., I need, you know, I had talked to Robert Klein, and he said, if I could do it over again, I would have moved to L.A. sooner. 
And that was the last guy out of my generation to L.A. And a lot of the comedians went on to be showrunners or writers or, you know, whatever. And so I said, no, I, you know, I got to get out. I got to put myself up against that. And then, you know, after like three years there, I go, it's over. It's done. I mean, I'll, I'll be a comedian, but I'm not going to get any breaks anymore. And of course, I don't know how I got out of that head. I guess it was just common sense. It just, I needed to go into that and say it's yeah, over. Were you running then? Were you, had you, had you stopped drinking for a while? Had you, were you journal? Like, what did you, how did you, because I, I just think, um, I just think it's sort of a heroic thing to, uh, not heroic like storming the beach of Iwo Jima, but personal, like for yourself to go like, no, I'm, I'm, and, and, and I see what happened with Mad Men that you set the course in motion at that time. Yeah, yeah, I, I, everything. And I had done Seinfeld, and shortly after that, I got a radio show, internet radio show that worked. Yes. I said, oh, this is good. And then I got Curb, and uh, I did punks. I did a bunch of punks, and people said, well, you shouldn't be on punk because people, you know, that's a step down for you. I said, no, 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 no. I just got to, it's the highest rated show on MTV. Just get out there and do it. I made an impression on the, the punk producers, and they had me on several times. So that was good. It was a paycheck. It was fun. I was busting on Kanye West. Right. I was still, I still, okay, I'm still a bit so relevant. So each step, you would say, okay, each thing, I'm just going to keep pressing forward. I'm going to audition. Then you got a TV show, Free Ride, at a certain point. You were in Soderbergh's movie, uh, The Informant. Thanks to you and David for well, your recommendation. You in, I mean, you were in our movie Rounders in a you, small part. You, but see, that helped too, having friends that didn't forget me. You know, having friends that, that would give me a, uh, something that they know I could handle. Be it Larry David, you, uh, when I auditioned. Jerry. Uh, definitely Jerry. Jeff Garland, uh, uh, a friend of mine, uh, Jack Perez, who uh, did small films, would put me in right. films. So I, I kept working. I never worked people for work you never once asked you've never how about this you've never once asked uh, me for a part in anything no never or, not even a, the suggestion or the hint of it no i don't work my friends and, and you know people say well you know you got a lot of connections you should call these people and i said no i i, I hate being a schnorr like that no but then you kept doing good work so somehow the fact that you could keep getting up on stage and moving to la meant you were able doing less sets oh yeah because fewer opportunities to get up. And I did less road work to stay in L.A. So I didn't make a market for myself on the road. I didn't go out and do 30, 40 weeks and do the morning radio. You were willing to let the road comic thing wane, even though you knew maybe that would be your only shot, actually, at like financial stability. Yeah, but I, was, I didn't want it from the road. Why? I, there was more I wanted to do. And here's the thing, and I'm thinking about this now. Every big move I've made came from within. It, you know, I looked outside, and certainly there's inspiration, but every big thing came from me just getting down on my guts, and you're not going to give up, little Jimmy. You're going to go out there, and you're going to, you know, David and Goliath, you know, whatever I did. And I think about it, and certainly I've, uh, books have helped me, The Road Less Traveled, uh, The Artist's Way. I did go out and get, seek outside sources, but all those big Moments, me getting on a train coming to New York. No one said, "Hey, you should get in show business." I think one woman from my parish, Lillian Bizjack, saw me in a place. She said, "You know what? You could do this professionally." She was the only one. And then in school, uh, my guidance counselor at Florida State in high school, they, she said, "You can't be a comedian all your life." 
my guidance, you, 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 and when I get out of Florida State, my guidance counselor said, you ever think of doing stand-up? You're, you're good at that. Huh. So it was a total switch. So it was an environment, when I got into an environment of support, where people saw yes. my talent or what I might be able to do, my potential. But potential is not a credential. You know, it's so. Yeah, but thinking about it now, everything I've done that has really helped me has come from me. Well, I remember when when uh, Madman was first on. Levine said, uh, "Hey, Alan, you, you know Madman. Have you told your people?" And you said, "I'm on it. I know. I want this." And we said, "What are you doing about it?" And you said, "I'm getting myself ready." Yeah. There's nothing to chase. No. They know about, I'm, I'm going to get myself to a position where when they call, I'm ready. And then you went in once before, right? I went in season two. I auditioned for Bobby Draper. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just one of the Bobby Drapers. I auditioned for a doctor who saw Peggy when she come out of the, she got out of the hospital with after the baby. Right. And it was a good audition, but they went with a younger guy. But for season three, four, five, I, instead of my managers, I said, just get, get me in the door. You know, it's gonna it's gonna happen. Just get me in the door. Finally, well, you think the Louis thing helped that you were on Louis? Louis is huge. Louis helped me with everything, with Up All Night, with The Office. No one said, "Hey, he was on Louis. Let's cast him." But it got me in the door, and oh, that's the guy on Louis. Great. My appearance on Louis was a huge door opening up. That's fantastic. That right? Was, yeah. And that, so then that happened, and that seemed to be like uh, I remember when that happened. Uh, wow, the move, everything paid off. Even though you were in New York to do Louie, I thought, okay, this is working. You got free ride. You'd had that show on. I hate. I made an appearance on Seinfeld in '96. It paid off immediately. I got to deal with WB for uh, a little bit, so I could see little progress, you know. But then '98, it goes, it's over, and then now just keep going back and digging just keep together. going. And and what does it feel like to you? Two things. We'll we'll wrap up soon, and I could uh, do this for much longer with you, but um. I remember when I was, I want to look at two sort of times in, in, in your life. And um, I remember in 89, you know, I was, I guess, 23. And I would spend a lot of weekends with you at the cellar. And because, you know, I was someone who just loved that world. And I was at that time scared to do it. And you were the best. And you were kind enough to, you know, want me in your corner. You were very comfortable to be around. There were a lot of people that wanted to hang out with me. I didn't want around. But you were, you were a good guy that way. Well, yeah, it was, somehow I was also a creative person. It, it all worked. We just naturally were, the age difference, and we were just naturally friends. And like we were saying yesterday, there have been times when I've been like your older brother and you've been like my older brother, and it's right. been a great sort of like uh, back and forth for our, our whole lives. But but what it looked like to me um, was that you were just having the time of your life. You were in your prime. You were like a thoroughbred. I mean, did you have an awareness at that time of like, this is in a certain way as good as it gets? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, let's say it ended in, like, 90. Yeah. I, it was great. Those days in the 80s, hanging out, going on stage, and just having a ball. And thank God for Bill Grunfest and the Comedy Cellar, because they let me go along some nights. They want to give me the light. And I would just... Those those years, it was just golden, man. I just... I was having a ball. It was fantastic. And is this the first time that's felt that good to you since then, do you think? Just driving down to the Mad Men set, yeah. working on that, is as good as it's been. It's In a way, it's better because it was. I'm on my favorite show. 
You know, this, I really love that show. Your dad would have loved this show, don't you? Oh, right? my dad, you know, my father who's long gone, and my mom. Uh, it's just it, the, the period of last November up until, you know, the present day, I have had to negotiate unmitigated joy. And it's not euphoria. There's something to be said for not, you know, getting too crazy and just kind of boiling it down and keeping a little glow in your heart. But I have been so damn happy doing this. And, I, you know, it's not like I'm delirious or anything, but it's been so much fun. I don't think, you know, when I did uh, Night After Night, that was a lot of fun, too. And I said, this is probably the last fun I'm going to have, you know, because it was, it was just a great time. A lot of great people came out of that, and it was a great time. But Mad Men was just superior to probably any environment I've been in. Well, and, and, and nobody can ever ask you that question again, right? The, the Mark Maron question of, hey, what's it feel like to not quite get all the way there? I mean, nobody can even ask you that question. No. Ever. Or I have an answer. <laughs> you know, you, you ask me that question, I have an answer. What's your answer? I'm, I'm there. Been there, done that. I mean, it's not going to get any better. Oh, it's, it, it's going to keep getting better. You know, I guess it could. I, I mean, don't this know. Is, you've, uh, listen, but people... winning an Emmy or an Oscar is not going to make... You know what I mean? As sweet as, uh, let's say I get a movie next year and I get an Oscar, for God's sakes, or I get to, you know, that'd be great. But there is something about Mad Men, that long desire and work and just belief and having it in my head and visualizing being there long before I was cast. And then getting there and having everyone work working with you. I mean, that cast is so generous and so talented and in such a groove. And for me to lock into that with the great writing and the direction from everyone I've worked with, sure. it's been unbelievable. Right. And for me, being in the rooting section, for all of us cheering for you for such a long time, <laughs> it has been, uh, you know, I sit there and, and watch the show on Sunday nights, and uh, I just raise my hands in victory whenever you're on screen. And uh, and I know that I'm not alone in that. And um, and that makes me even happier. That my friends and and fans and fellow comedians and colleagues but, but, are genuinely happy for Because me. you might not have been angry that people hadn't sat up and really uh, en masse noticed how great you were, but we were angry. Okay. So it's great that now they do. Well, Alan, see. Alan, thank you. Is everybody happy? Well, <laughs> I, I don't know. Are you going to be happy tomorrow? This is, like, this is the happiest I've ever seen you. Um, no, probably. I have work to do. So. All right, you'll do your work. Well, thanks for being here. You can find, you can't find Alan on Twitter because he doesn't tweet. No. You can find me, Brian Koppelman, uh, at Twitter. Thanks for listening. AlanHavey.com. Go to AlanHavey.com. Hey, well, you got to put up the liner notes that I wrote for your album for the people. No, that, when you buy the album, you get it. I'm You're old school, You're not going to put the liner notes up. No, but you got to do some legwork, folks. It's yeah. in a different era now. Okay. I don't care. See a man of a different time. <laughs> with a code <laughs> with a code alright thank you thank you for listening to Grantland to hear more Grantland shows in your earballs subscribe to Grantland Sports and Grantland Pop Culture on iTunes or go to grantland.com and click on podcast